Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On Friday, November 5th, Judge Timothy Walmsley invited the prosecution and defense attorneys to deliver their opening statements to a panel of 12 jurors and three alternate jurors. On today's episode, we examine the first part of Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's opening. At the end of the episode, we will invite our consulting producer, Paul Butler, to comment on Dunikowski's opening. That's coming up after the break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Linda Dunikowski is a seasoned career prosecutor. Over 17 years, she rose through the ranks of Atlanta's Fulton County District Attorney's Office, handling everything from homicides to complex conspiracy cases. In 2019, she moved over to the Cobb County DA's office in Marietta, where she heads up the appellate section. In April of this year, Dunikowski took over the case against the McMichaels and Bryan after the former lead prosecutor, Jesse Evans, left the Cobb County Prosecutor's Office. Dunikowski becomes the fifth prosecutor to handle this case, overseeing a team that includes attorneys Larissa Olivier and Paul Camarilla. Her style is pedagogical. Early in her opening, Dunikowski tells jurors to take careful notes because the stenographer cannot read back opening statements. She also explains how the trial evidence is entered and prepares the jurors for how bureaucratic the process can seem. But Dunikowski begins her opening statement with the key concepts underlying the state's case. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. My name is Linda Dunikowski, and I represent the people of the state of Georgia and the citizens of Glen County. Why are we here? We are here because of assumptions and driveway decisions. A very wise person once said, don't assume the worst of another person's intentions until you actually know what's going on with them. Don't assume the worst with what they intend to do. But in this case, all three of these defendants did everything they did based on assumptions. Not on facts, not on evidence, on assumptions. And they made decisions in their driveways based on those assumptions that took a young man's life. And that is why we are here. So ladies and gentlemen, what's gonna happen now is the state is gonna give you its opening statement. I'm gonna do this in a couple different parts. The first part is I'm gonna talk about the indictment and the charges in the indictment. Then we're gonna talk about some housekeeping issues that relate to how evidence is going to come to you in this particular case. We're gonna talk about who the parties are, where this happened, and then exactly what led up to February 23rd of 2020 
in the Satilla Shores neighborhood. So first off, the burden is on the state to prove to you these charges beyond a reasonable doubt. Now that is the doubt of a fair-minded and impartial juror honestly seeking the truth, not seeking doubt, and it's not beyond all doubt or to any mathematical certainty, but the burden is on the state. And the defendants have been indicted with the first count, which is murder. We call that malice murder. What's malice murder? That's intent to kill. Now the state does not have to prove premeditation, planning. We're not required to prove motive about why anybody did anything. But malice is something that can be formed in an instant. And a fatal mortal wound can be blown or can be shown. Assumptions, driveway decisions, malice. Dunikowski will return to these words throughout her opening. Dunikowski then submits to the jury that the killing of Ahmaud Arbery could fall under an additional legal definition of murder. So in this case, the defendants have been indicted as parties to a crime for malice murder, intent to kill that was instantly formed. In addition, they've been charged with four counts of felony murder based on the four underlying felonies in the indictment. Now, what's felony murder? Felony murder is where you're committing a felony and someone dies because of the felony you're committing. Classic example, of course, is a guy goes into a drugstore to hold up the clerk, right? He's not there to murder the clerk, he's there to hold the clerk up. But during that armed robbery, it goes bad and he kills the clerk. Jay, That's I'm good. Analogies and explanation of the law. You can state the law, no problem with that. But to go beyond that is not proper for opening statement. The jury's been charged on what an opening statement is. Um, again, ladies and gentlemen, I've just explained to you that this is the overview of the case uh, that will be presented by the state defense will have the same opportunity. Um, again, the law will be charged, or well, that's a very legal term. The court's going to give you all of the law in this case, as I've already explained at the end. The state is now explaining its position with regard to the case. If we could make sure that it is uh, considered in that light. State. Thank you, Judge. These are the charges in the indictment, which are felony murder. And it's committing a felony, not with intent to kill, but someone dies during that felony. So what felonies are we actually talking about here? Well, we're talking about aggravated assault with a shotgun. Because in this case, the state is going to show you and prove that Travis McMichael brought a shotgun. And then he pointed it at Mr. Arbery and then he pulled the trigger and he killed him during that aggravated assault. Aggravated assault with pickup trucks. Both Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael were in a white F-150 pickup truck that they used to cut off Mr. Arbery, to go at him, to get him to stop. Mr. Bryan used his Chevy Silverado to go at Mr. Ryan and to force him down into a ditch as he ran on the public roadways of Satilla Shores. That's aggravated assault with a 5,000 pound lethal weapon, otherwise known as a pickup truck. False imprisonment. That is where you detain somebody in violation of their personal liberty. You hold them. Or in the words of Greg McMichael, you trap them like a rat. 
And then we have criminal attempt at false imprisonment. And criminal attempt at false imprisonment in this case took place on Burford, within the Satilla Shores neighborhood, when both the McMichaels and Defendant Bryan attempted to confine Mr. Arbery on Burford. And that's criminal attempt. Prosecutor Dunikowski steps back in her story to introduce the victim in this case. So who are we talking about in this case? Well, this is 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery. Now, this photo was taken, you know, when he was much younger. But this is who he is. He lived over at 140 Boykin Ridge Drive, lived with his mother. He was also a brother. He was an uncle. And he was an avid runner. The evidence that he was an avid runner is you're going to be able to see his shoes, his Nike shoes, where he basically almost had absolutely no tread left on them whatsoever. She then introduces the men who chased Mr. Arbery. So ladies and gentlemen, who else do we have? We have Travis McMichael, seated right over here, 34 years old at the time of this, worked at Metz and Marine, lived at 230 Satilla Drive with his parents, Greg McMichael and Lee McMichael. He is not, and was not, the law enforcement officer at the time of this incident. Greg McMichael, 64 years old at the time of the incident, a retiree living over at 230 Satilla Drive at the time of this incident, not a law enforcement officer. And then we have Defendant Brian, who goes by the name Roddy. So when people talk about him, you'll hear Roddy. 64 years old as well, a mechanic living at 307 Burford in the Satilla Shores neighborhood at the time of this incident, not a law enforcement officer. Dunikowski introduces a map of the neighborhood where the incident took place. It shows that Satilla Drive runs parallel to the Satilla River for two blocks before ending, just after the intersection with Burford Drive. The McMichaels live at 230 Satilla Drive, and Mr. Bryan lives on Burford Drive. There are only two ways to get in and out of the neighborhood. We are also going to be talking about 220 Satilla Drive. A lot of us will be using shorthand, 220. It is an open, unsecured construction site. The land is owned not by any of the defendants, no, by Larry and Amy English. It's under construction and it's wide open. There's no front door. There's no back door. There's no garage door. There's no garage door on the boat. Completely and utterly wide open and it had been this way for over a year because Larry English was trying to act as a general contractor and finish the house himself. This open, unsecured construction site has absolutely no, no trespassing signs on it. None whatsoever. It also has no fence around the property at all. So where is it? It's at 220. Dunikowski points out that the McMichaels' home is just five houses away from the unsecure construction site at 220 Satilla Drive. Larry English has health issues. So Larry English is not going to be here to testify. Larry English gave a deposition. All right? You will see that deposition because it was videotaped. And Larry English is going to tell you that he met the McMichaels only a few times. Like one, one or two times. However, Greg McMichael in his statement says that he doesn't even know Larry English. McMichaels had never been given permission to be at 220, nor had they ever received a warning not to be there. 
Larry English is going to tell you that there were lots of looky-loos. And Larry English had started to have concerns about liability. The other thing Larry English is going to tell you is nothing had ever been stolen from the construction site in 2019 or 2020. Larry English is going to tell you that nothing had ever been stolen from the construction site in 2019 or 2020. So October of 2019 comes. He's got these concerns about liability. He's concerned about, concerned about the kids on the dock. And he installs cameras in the dock area. He does. And what happens? He gets a looky loo On October 25th, 2019, at 10.04 in the evening, Mr. Arbery is seen on the dock video. You're going to get to see it. Okay? He's on the dock. He's wandering around. He does not take anything. Doesn't steal anything. He's wandering around on this dock, looking around. And Larry English calls 911 to report it. The thing is, Mr. Arbery leaves by the time 911 shows up. He's gone. Because he only spends a few minutes looking around, wandering around, and then he leaves. Then we have November 17th of 2019. At 10.21 p.m., we have a white couple that show up together, a man and a woman, and they're carrying a bag. So their English calls 911, and he's like, I think these are the people who stole my stuff. They're carrying a bag. I think they're there to go ahead and steal some more of my stuff. Wants the police to go. Of course, this white couple also leaves before the police arrive. But they are the people at this point in time that Larry English is suspecting, oh, they've stolen my stuff. Then what do we have? November 18th at 6.53, the very next night, Mr. Arbery is back. He's now on video inside the house. So what Larry English did is he had it out in the dock with the cameras. He's now installed inside the house some cameras. So up it comes. It's Mr. Arbery. Here's the funny thing about that 911 call. When Mr. English calls 911 on November 18th, he starts talking about the white couple. I called last night, and there was this white couple, and I think they're the ones who stole my stuff. Then we have December 17th of 2019. By this point in time, Mr. English has gotten Officer Rash's personal cell phone number, or not personal cell phone number, but his cell phone number to call him. So on December 17th, his uh, camera phone thing goes off. Oh, somebody's over there. Okay, Mr. Arbery's at the open, unsecured construction site. He's there for a few minutes, and the actual time when he got there is unknown because Mr. English didn't call 911. He called Officer Rash. And ladies and gentlemen, here's what Mr. English saw on his video for December 19th. Mr. Arbery ran off on his jog into the neighborhood. Okay, so into the neighborhood. In other words, down towards the McMichaels household. What happens next is this. On January 1st of 2020, bright, sunshiny, cold day, 10.30 a.m., 54 days prior to the homicide, Travis McMichaels' handgun is stolen out of his unlocked pickup truck in front of 230 Satilla Drive. Greg McMichael went and moved it. He left it unlocked. And somebody came along. It's unsolved, and there's absolutely no evidence that Mr. Arbery is the one who went and stole Travis McMichael's handgun in broad daylight on January 1st of 2020. But this happened, and Travis McMichael called up 
That brings us to February 11th of 2020. At 7.30 p.m., this is 12 days before the murder. So what happens on February 11th, 2020? Travis Michael goes out in his car. He's coming back in to the neighborhood. And he sees Mr. Arbery at the location. Larry English has been sharing these videos that you're going to see that I just showed you because they're trying to identify who this guy is so somebody can tell him, please stop coming. Please stop showing up at night because we have 12 police and the police show up and then nobody's there. So these videos have been shared and people have seen them. So Travis McMichael, who knows about this, not personally knows about it. This is all hearsay, word on the street. You know, he's seen these videos. Hasn't talked to Larry English personally, but he goes ahead and goes past the house. This is his neighbor's house, right? Okay. He's concerned. He sees somebody out in front of it. He actually stops and puts some headlights on him. Um, you can actually see the headlights in the video. And at that point, he goes ahead and goes home. So Travis McMichael goes home, gets his dad, Greg McMichael. They both get their guns, get back in the truck, and go back down the open, unsecured construction site. And that's when Travis McMichael calls 911. So what we've got is we've got Travis going down to his house. They're getting their stuff, getting their guns, coming back, calling 911. Well, here's the thing. What does Mr. Arbery do? He shows up, he wanders around for a few minutes, and he leaves. So by the time Travis has gone down, gotten his dad, Mr. Arbery has left. Officer Rash is standing there, and you know what he says to the McMichaels? He says, I'm talking to Mr. English right now, and he sent me some videos, and Mr. English says that this guy has never stolen or taken anything from this property. So the McMichaels at this point in time are fully informed that the owner of the house has informed law enforcement that Mr. Arbery has never taken anything from this property. They know this. Greg McMichael, of course, pipes up and says, well, it's at least criminal trespass. A misdemeanor, okay? And at that point, Officer Rash goes, well, it's probably loitering and prowling. Do you hear the words burglary or attempted burglary? No one's talking about a burglary or an attempted burglary with Officer Rash. It's all about criminal trespass. It's all about loitering and prowling. And that's what they know 12 days before the homicide. But right now, what's important is what Greg McMichael and Travis McMichael knew about this young man. And what they knew is that there was no evidence that he committed any felony or theft at the construction site, per the owner and per the police. And that brings us to what? February 23rd of 2020, a Sunday at 1.08 in the afternoon. Mr. Arbery is on video from Ronnie Olson's house across the street. Yep, Ronnie Olson's not home. But this is just unmanned video he's got. Mr. Arbery walks up in broad daylight on a Sunday afternoon to the open, unsecured construction site. And he stands there in the front yard. And he's looking around. And he's looking around. He's looking around. He's looking at the house. He goes over this way. He goes over that way. He's out in front of it for a number of seconds. And he's seen by Matthew Albenze who lives down Jones, Jones Road. So Mr. Arbery, guess what he's doing again inside the 220 location? 
That's what he's doing. Walking around, looking around, doing this. Okay. Doesn't take anything, doesn't damage anything. He's inside there, just wandering around. Mr. Albenze, Matt Albenze, who's walked down the street, he's got overalls on. He walks down the street, he stands in the street, he stands under a tree, and he calls 911, but not 911, the non emergency number. He calls the non emergency line 108. Mr. Arbery then leaves 220 Satilla Drive and he runs off really, really quickly down the street into the neighborhood. Not out of the neighborhood, into the neighborhood. Mr. Albenzi calls non emergency 911. And of course, an officer is actually dispatched. The police are on their way. This is the thing. Greg McMichael is in front of 230 Satilla Drive. He's all alone. And he sees Mr. Arbery running really, really fast down the street. He actually uses the words hauling ass. Okay, and he is. Mr. Arbery is running really fast down that street. But the whole thing started when I saw this guy running down the street. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. At this moment in her presentation, Prosecutor Dunikowski returns to the theme of driveway decisions made by the defendants that she previewed for the jury at the outset of her opening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is driveway decision number one, because Greg McMichael actually has no idea that Mr. Arbery was inside 220, the open, unsecured construction site. But on the same side of the street, he's in his driveway working on his boat cushions. He has no idea where Mr. Arbery is coming from, why he's coming from, or anything. He has no idea that Mr. Arbery has just been inside 220. He only sees him running down the street. Really fast. Hauling ass, but he only sees him running down the street. And what does he decide to do? He runs inside to get his gun. Travis McMichael is inside the house. Travis McMichael is not outside. Travis McMichael doesn't see Mr. Arbery running down the street. He's inside when Greg McMichael runs inside. Greg McMichael assumed the worst. Greg McMichael had absolutely no immediate knowledge, none, that Mr. Arbery had been inside, wandering around for a few minutes, the open, unsecured construction site. No idea. But this is what he tells the police later. This is what he tells the police two hours or so later at the Glen County Police Station. So I thought, well, you know, he's running from somebody. He's just done something. You know, he might have hurt somebody or whatever because, you know, this guy's been in and out of that damn one house over and over and over again, got him on videos and everything. He's assumed the worst and has absolutely no immediate knowledge of any crime whatsoever. 
And note, he is specifically talking about what he assumed Mr. Arbery had done that day. He's running from somebody. He's just done something. You know, he might have hurt somebody or whatever. He's talking about what he thought he was doing that day. Not any other day, that day. These are the words of Greg McMichael. So Greg McMichael makes his driveway decision in this case. This is where it all starts, right at this moment, in that driveway. Five minutes later, Maude Arbery's dead. But this is where it all starts. Greg McMichael chooses specifically, knowingly and intentionally, to arm himself with a handgun because he hauls ass inside of his house and gets his revolver. He gets his son, Travis McMichael, who gets his Remington 12-gauge pump shotgun. Driver decision two, Travis McMichael. Ladies and gentlemen, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Travis McMichael turned to his dad and said, calm down. It's Sunday. Call 911. Travis McMichael made a decision, a knowing, intelligent decision, to pick up a Remington 12-gauge shotgun and go with his father and get in his pickup truck to go after Mr. Arbery. Driveway decision number two. He gets in that white F-150 pickup truck, backs out of the driveway, and heads in the direction that Mr. Greg McMichael saw Mr. Arbery running. Now here's the thing. In the front of the pickup truck is Travis McMichael's kid's car seat. But that doesn't deter Greg McMichael. Greg McMichael climbs in and sits on that car seat so that they can go chase Mr. Arbery. Driveway decision. After getting his shotgun and getting in his pickup truck, Travis McMichael later tells the police, this is later, after Mr. Arbery's been killed, that at one point in time he saw Mr. Albenze point one time down the street, so he assumed something was up. The words of Travis McMichael, I assumed. There's absolutely no evidence that there was any verbal communication or any phone communication or any communication with the McMichaels that Mr. Albenzi had seen Mr. Arbery inside 220, the open unsecured construction site. No communication, just the pointing of a finger. Now, Travis McMichael, without any immediate knowledge, assumed the worst, and here's what he said. So we stopped, and I said, hey, just want to talk to you. Where are you running from? What are you doing? He has no idea where Mr. Arbery's coming from. He wants to ask him about that. He has no idea what Mr. Arbery's doing. Where are you running from? What are you doing? Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael are in a pickup truck, a white pickup truck. Mr. Arbery is a pedestrian. He is running on the streets. And he's asking Ahmad Arbery about what he's doing that day. Where are you running from? What are you doing that day? So ladies and gentlemen, we're now going to talk about defendant William Roddy Bryan at 307 Burford. Because when that stop talk happens, pulls up next to Mr. Arbery and he starts questioning Mr. Arbery, Travis McMichael does, it's actually captured on video in front of Mr. Bryan's house. Mr. Bryan has the night owl system. And what you see is Travis McMichael's white F-150 pickup truck in front of Mr. Bryan's house at 307. And then Mr. Bryan makes his driveway decision. Defendant Bryan sees Mr. Arbery 
running away from the white pickup truck. And he makes an assumption, because he has absolutely no idea what's been going on. And he joins the McMichaels in chasing down Mr. Arbery. He just joins in. Oh, white pickup truck chasing a young man. And he just joins in. You're witnessing his driveway decision to join the McMichaels in chasing down Mr. Arbery. We're going to pause here and bring in Georgetown law professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler, to offer his insight into this portion of Dunikowski's opening. Paul Butler, thank you for being with us again today. It's great to be here. Would you take us through the counts in this case? I think we have malice murder, felony murder, and the underlying felonies of aggravated assault and false imprisonment. That's right, Carrie. There are two different theories of murder that the prosecutors are using to try to get convictions against all three defendants. In Georgia, malice murder is an intentional killing without any legal justification. It doesn't require premeditation, as the prosecutor was careful to point out to the jury, meaning the government doesn't have to prove that the McMichaels and Mr. Bryant got together and planned out to kill Mr. Arbery. Uh, The prosecutor says the wrongful mental state that's required for malice murder can be formed in an instant. In addition to malice murder, the government's other theory is felony murder. The classic example of felony murder, as the prosecutor explained, is if some people are robbing a bank and let's say the bank teller is killed during the course of the robbery. In that situation, all of the bank robbers could be charged with felony murder. The underlying felony would be bank robbery. And this felony murder rule is a doctrine that the United States got from the United Kingdom. England no longer uses it. A lot of other countries like Germany, France, they never had it. It's a law that prosecutors like a lot. Judges tend not to like it as much because you don't have to prove the traditional mind state for murder, that is the intent to kill or extreme recklessness. For felony murder, all you have to do is prove as a prosecutor that the defendants were committing another crime called the underlying felony. And while they were committing that underlying felony, somebody died. In this case, the underlying felonies are aggravated assault and false imprisonment. So if the prosecutors can prove that the McMichaels and Bryant were trying to assault Mr. Arbery or trying to imprison him without any legal justification. They've proven the underlying felony. And then if they can prove that Mr. Arbery died as a consequence of those underlying felonies, then the prosecutors get their murder conviction on a theory of felony murder. What did you make of the way that she framed for the jury the story of what these men did to Mr. Arbery? Do you think she set a narrative that can form a basis for the jury to convict these men? So it's a tall order for a prosecutor to do in an hour or a couple of hours, depending on how much time the judge gives you. But I I thought that the prosecutor here did a fine job with 
both of those tasks. She told a compelling story about what happened to a young man who was just out for a jog, the tragic circumstances that befell him. And she talked about the bad guys and their quick decisions. She called them driveway decisions that resulted in this tragic loss. And it's hard to say if you're not there in the courtroom, but I think she came across as someone who is extremely competent and, and very trustworthy. And one sign that she was effective is that on a few occasions, she was interrupted by the defense lawyers. It's considered really bad form to object or otherwise interrupt a lawyer during her opening statement or during her closing statement. Judges don't like it. It's kind of not playing by the agreed upon rules in part because the judge instructs the jury that opening statements and closing statements are lawyers' opinions. You're not evident that's presented in court. They're just the lawyer's interpretation of what the evidence reveals. And so typically there's no reason to object because it's understood that it's just this person's opinion. But we heard objections here, and those may have been about legitimate disputes of law, but they also may have been a sign of concern by the defense attorneys that the prosecutor was making a big impact on the jurors and they wanted to disrupt. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us on our next episode as Paul Butler and I examine the conclusion of Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's opening statement to the jury. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was written by Art Montrostelli. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracom. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.